Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Toby. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling mercurial. Oh. Yes, because you know me, I'm often um, subject to sudden or unpredictable changes of mood or mind. Yeah. And you are. Um, and this, it, but basically, it's got it's got winter is coming. I can like feel it in my bones. Mm. And being in Margate, I swear to God, we are getting like higher rainfall than we've ever had in the UK's history. And I've been thinking a lot about rainfall and mm. water and mm. nature because of today's guest. Because today's guest's work is extraordinary. They work across numerous mediums actually really effortlessly but some of my favorite work is actually photographs and film work and they're actually probably best known for their sculptures but I kind of love the way that across all these mediums the kind of language of sculpture is is so present and and so kind of I don't know like the physicality of the body and and all of these different themes which we'll be exploring today mm. and I know that I'd said to you before the episode I said how are you feeling and you said between a rock and a hard place and that's also a good it's not only a Rolling Stones <laughs> song but that would also have been a good how are you feeling so exactly. I thought I'd add that one in we would like to welcome to Torka all the way actually where where are you right now? well let's find out in a second okay. Rob. all the way from somewhere in a gallery in England in the UK, Roseanne Robertson. Hi, Roseanne. Hi, Russell. Hi, Robert. Really nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Cool. So where are you to answer Rob's question then? So I am just finished installing my solo exhibition at Maximilian William in London. Ah, so you're in London. I wasn't sure if you were in like Bristol or so. I couldn't remember, but yeah. So I'm based in West Cornwall. So That's right. Yeah. I live in Newland in West Cornwall. But you're from West Yorkshire. So you moved from West Yorkshire to West Cornwall. You're always like the west of somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you're in the West End now. But aren't I'm you? actually originally from the northeast of England. So I've moved around quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yes. You grew up in Sunderland, didn't you? That's right, yeah. Yeah. And when did you move out to West Cornwall then? Yeah, so um, I was based in West Yorkshire up until 2019. And at the end mm. of 2019, I moved down to West Cornwall. What 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 has that been like? Has that been incredibly inspiring? That and that was for art, wasn't it? You were taken there as part of uh, like a, a studio program, or well, it it was. 
I mean, I'd, I'd been part of a program in West Yorkshire called Yorkshire mm. Sculpture International, and that really started or cemented my sort of relationship with the natural landscape um, in the way that I was working. And it was through following, I suppose, the landscape that I ended up in West Cornwall through the inspiration of the, the Cornish landscape. Mm. It was just, you know, through visiting um, Cornwall, I would always feel so inspired when I was there and feel much more free in my thinking and um, the way that my drawing was sort of expanding when I was there. And I just thought I knew if I moved there, I could sort of, you know, live in that inspiration so much more. And I was really lucky that I got um, I got a short-let studio at Porthmere Studios in St Ives for six months. Wow. So in the January, straight after I moved there, I was... Um, so cold, in, really cold in St Ives in January. Well, yeah, but not compared to the North of England, so it was quite um, oh, tropical it was, it was for me, yeah. Moved, <laughs> <it>? <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you've, you've, um, you were talking about um, the Yorkshire kind of sculpture... Um, <clears throat> associate that, that that you were in the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. I know you you showed there, but also yeah. you've had this connection to Barbara Hepworth, both as inspiration but also in location because of the Hepworth Wakefield and now being in St Ives. Yes, yeah, she's it's, St Ives royalty, isn't she? It, yeah, exactly. exactly. And so are you now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, can you speak yeah. a bit about that connection? Because it's interesting that you love her work, and then you've kind of ended up being in locations that are associated very closely with her. Yeah, so I got like to have such um, a special connection with the work of Barbara Hepworth through the Hepworth Wakefield because I was paired with the Hepworth Wakefield as an associate artist mm. of the Yorkshire Sculpture International. Um, and then making that same journey, you know, through different landscapes has been really special and seeing it, I feel like even more so because of the sort of crisis that we've all lived through as well because... Barbara Hepworth moved there, you know, during like wartime and during like right. massive, you know, crisis um, and moved to this new place and and made work through a time of like massive restriction. So I feel like even it's been even more heightened that, I mean, usually moving to a new place and working with new inspiration of the landscape can be a really generative sort of time. But, you know, working through what we've all been through with all the restrictions that we've had and coming through that. Yeah, it's been it's been an amazing sort of journey. The the idea of restrictions with her, I guess, would be a lot of the materiality, trying to get the resources like she worked a lot with metal and stone mm. and, and wood carvings. But I, I guess for you, you wouldn't have them restrictions as much because you are using the natural world as your material. Yeah. You, you, you have plaster and you have obviously paper and the materials for that, but you really look towards our nature and what that means about how, how that kind of links with the body. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been looking at the materials, I suppose, of the landscape and of the body at the same time. And that started um, as a sort of exploration. I was looking specifically at stone and water and the qualities of um, stone and water. Mm. So the work that I was making in Yorkshire, it was based around this journey I was making from the studio up, up to a set of stones called the Bridestones. And I was just sort of studying the landscape in a way. For the first time, I was really just experimenting in the open air. Uh, I was doing these sort of what I describe as like bodily interventions. So they end up being like performance for camera works, um, but it's literally exploring in a really sort of spontaneous way how my body interacts with the natural landscape. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was interested in how 
So we think of stone as being this unyielding material that's, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we say things like things are set in stone and it's got a relationship with like hardness and even like with masculinity. And then thinking about material of like water and how that is deemed to be sort of softer and can be more easily related to sort of like femininity. And we use these characteristics to sort of explain our own genders and and how we identify a lot of the time. Mm. Mm. But there's a sort of contradiction for me at the the centre of this is that, you know, water shapes stone and erodes stone over a long period of time. So Mm. it... um, yeah, it's it's just this contradiction within the materials that I was really interested in. It's ever ever evolving. Like you're saying that you think we think of rock as hard, but actually this has been there for millions of years, and it's eroded over time with nature, with with water. So something that was really uh, striking to me is that um, there's a quote from an interview you've done where you said that queerness has been represented as something that is against nature, and it's it's true as, as being a queer person, we've been sort of bred and told growing up that being gay being queer is against nature but the work that you're doing is that you are working with nature uh to reappropriate that queerness yeah so i describe it as sort of reclaiming a natural space for queer identity from a, a recent history of being you know deemed against nature and that yeah i do that in a, in a, in a couple of ways directly by working in the natural landscape mm. and also by you know, positioning my work within queer history, like, you know, the references that I use, um, you know, are from our recent history. And a lot of the inspiration for me has come from um, a novel titled Stone Butch, which is all about, you know, queer liberation in this period from, you know, real violent oppression towards liberation and freedom. And actually within that novel, the natural landscape has used as a sort of almost like a metaphor for freedom and this sort of like release from like really violent um, constraints and categorizations and yeah. When was, when was this book written? So it was uh, written in the 90s, mm. um, but it's about a period sort of pre-Stonewall um, um, right through sort of, yeah, through... A time where people, you know, people's genders were being really heavily policed, a lot of police brutality, and then coming through into a period where there were, you know, more freedoms. But like living through that, the character um, is, I suppose, kind of like changes their journey with gender changes throughout the journey of the novel as well. They identify as a butch lesbian um, closer to the start of the journey, and then they identify as a trans man later on in the journey. Right. Um, and that was written by Leslie Feinberg, wasn't it? Yeah. I think it was published yeah. in 1993, but the, the full title is Stone Butch Blues. Yeah, And it's quite right. an I- iconic book, isn't it? It's like... Yeah, it's revolutionary. Yeah. It's, um, it goes through, you know, so much queer history, yeah. a, a really particular sort of perspective um, and journey with gender and sexuality. Was it... Uh, is it a hopeful book if it was printed in the 90s and we're now in 2021 like 30 years later was there a hope in this book that we would have a different oppression when it came to the policing of gender which it feels like we are in the kind of the epicenter of oppression when it comes to Mm. representation and and freedom to be who you want to be yeah i mean it leaves um, in a really hopeful place at the end of the novel which is kind of um, symbolized by returning home for this person so they're returning home and there's this scene 
where um, Jessie, the main character, and this trans woman who they've been living with and have, have built a really close relationship with are kind of like looking at this natural landscape where they are both kind of from in rural America and looking at the, the wild sort of weeds and flowers that are grown in the fields and it leaves you at this like jumping off, jumping off point really of like possibility and like queer connection and joy. Um, for me, I feel like we're still at that jump, jumping off point yeah, in a way. Yeah, right. Um, but that, yeah, that things are happening, but we're still, I mean, really, we're, we're not, for me, I don't feel like we're far enough away from some of the trauma and like exactly. awful things that have happened to be able to really reflect and to, yeah. we've, we've got to move through it before we can kind of move on in a way. Yeah. So your your pronouns are they and them. And this is another quote where you said my experiences of gender nonconformity is part of my experience and my experiences my experience is not separated from my work. So the fundamentals of your practice are really embedded in the autobiography of your life. Yeah, I work with my own experience and I think my my practice is a real like personal exploration as well. Um but that I hope one that people can connect with themselves. So even though I'm coming from, I suppose, like one perspective in a way, the way that I describe it is that we've all got a gender and we've all got a sexuality and they vary mm. and mm. we're all on a spectrum. So for, I hope it's sort of a unifying experience as well. Yeah, I find it incredibly universal and mm. and, and, and touching and also otherworldly at times these feel like these creatures these they feel like quite alien creatures because sometimes they're on stilts they're, they're, they're freestanding but they have this kind of like war of the worlds element at times but you, so i want to talk about the process that comes from when you find you were talking about brisco bristones moor where you were uh based and you'd walk up to the bristones so it's yeah it's um, pronounced bridestones bridestones sorry yeah. No yes, and you and you 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 went up to the bridestones and you would take plaster with you, and then you would find these um, kind of spaces, these negative spaces uh, within rock formations, and then yeah. you would fill them with. Well, let's talk about that process. How, and, and what makes a good? How, how do you spot a good negative <laughs> space? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I was drawn to, I suppose, cracks in the rocks um, because I saw, I saw that that these rocks are sort of figures of the landscape themselves or what I was describing as like queer bodies, but that they were kind of splitting into two forms or they were in the process of splitting into two, two forms. So um, I was just really interested, just thought there was so much energy and potential in this space. Um, I've only really started to understand what that space actually represents a little bit later on, but at the time I was just really intrigued to see what this space looked like if it was made physical. So looking at negative space looking at a negative space and turn it in, turning it into a positive form just to mm -hmm. see what that looks like so that, that they're like chance compositions really because I don't know what they're going to look like until they come out so the process like you say was basically taking my studio up onto the moors um, with a mobile sort of sculpture studio of plaster on a little trolley <laughs> get, um, walking across the moors and then I was using um, like cheesecloth or uh, muslin material and plaster and in a really direct way just forming um, the plaster into the into the crack mm -hmm. and then it was just a case of 
I mean, it always depended on the conditions and the weather, how dry it was, but it would usually take about half an hour for it to dry sort of completely. And then there's just this really satisfying moment where you kind of just try and pull it away from the crack and you just hear this noise and you know that it's kind of this solid object. So it's turned wow. from, it's turned from, so plaster obviously mixed with water is this really fluid um, material and then it dries like really quickly, it gets really hot and then it's just set. So it's like really satisfying moment of just like picking your sculpture up and, <laughs> you know, having a look at it for the first time and... Do you have to um, work quite quickly when you get the plaster on in the first place to make sure that it's going to go in the crack yeah, that you've, yeah. Yeah, really quickly. You've got like five minutes that you can work with it, really. Are you on um, your own doing this or do you have a team? Uh, I was working with my partner on that specific set yeah. of sculptures. So there was just two of us. Um, I mean, it's quite straightforward in a way, but it was it was the first time that it was you know, my practice, what I made relied on on the weather, on the conditions, on on, on so many sort of variables. Um, but yeah, and then, so I produced, I called them like sculptural voids. Mm. I produced uh, four in Yorkshire that were exhibited between the Hepworth Wakefield and Yorkshire Sculpture Park. Um, and it's actually through this process of making sculptures in this way that I ended up making the public sculpture that's in London, that's made using the same process. I've seen mm. it, sculpture in the city by the gherkin, if yeah. anyone's passing. Yes, is it still there? It is, yeah, it'll be there yeah. until spring next year. Oh, great. Spring and what, what, was, what was the one in London made out of? So the one in London um, is, it's made out of jesmonite. So That's right, yes. Jesmonite is, it's not dissimilar to working with plaster because yeah. it's mixed with, it's mixed with the resin instead of water, but it's still, you know, going from liquid into that solid form. Yeah, and it's really tough, isn't it? It's like a really sort of strong material but you can have that whiteness that you have with plaster yeah it's like marble. an aesthetic yeah you can like get so many yeah you can get lots of different types of it and the type that i've used is yeah like the outdoor um grid just made so it's really strong i heard it's really easy to use as well when it sets and stuff like that like it's quite an enjoyable process i worked with an artist who worked a lot with it it's so yeah it's really versatile like you can yeah. get um you can get a type of jesmonite that's really great for carving it's great for casting. It's, you know, waterproof, weatherproof, UV resistant. It's brilliant. So those sculptural voids that you're talking about, they had an amazing title, which was Chasm Schism. Yeah. And I love this thread that I've noticed throughout the work, because even the reference to the, the novel, you know, from um, Stone Butch, Butch Blues, yeah. um, it kind of brought to mind lots of different other artists weirdly like people like who aren't even necessarily fine artists but people like Bjork who who have a relationship to even sampling kind of volcanoes or mm. uh, you know a, a direct relationship to nature from Iceland but also all over the world and even titles from like her homogenic record um but that which is one of my favorite albums ever made by anybody um but but even more recent titles if you think of like Stone Milker like there's kind of like elements within her work that I saw a parallel with yours, even though you might not put the two together. Yeah, that's really guess... cool. That's very nice. Yeah. But can you speak a bit about the kind of poetry within your work and the use of language? And the use of metaphors as well, because yes. it feels like yes. the, the metaphor is, uh, runs through your practice a lot. Well, that, that specific title, Chasm Schism, was about just like really colliding two things together and mm. just putting the words together and kind of um, ignoring grammar or ignoring that they're not supposed to be kind of like you just pushed together in that way um and the idea of two negative spaces together or two um voids um kind of 
yeah, place together. So that the chasm being the sort of physical gap and the schism um, relates more to like a psychological gap, something mm-hmm. within the sort of mind. Mm-hmm. So like for me, putting those two words together kind of connects that um, physical and sort of more psychological or spiritual. Um, I was also thinking a lot about creating new words and the, yeah. idea, the, the possibilities <laughs> of language and whether that was of interest to you. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite inspired by sort of um, Dada and surrealism as well and kind of, yeah, making your own language and disregarding sort of rules and categories and, you know, sprawling across different mediums. It's all about sort of spilling out over boundaries and, um, yeah, I like to play around with the, with the title and I would like the titles to bring something visceral to the work as well mm. in the way yeah. that you've, yeah. Well, you, art does what other... words can't, doesn't it, I guess, mm. with the limitations of language, especially when it's around gender and sexuality. But placing gender and sexuality within the natural landscape can do something that words can't. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's something that that is very, like, fundamental about mm. the human body, is, you know, about our connection with the earth. Um yeah, my, my work connects with, you know, subjects within queer, queer ecologies and, um, yeah, how we can sort of, like, dis- disrupt understandings of, like, more heterosexist relationship, relationships with landscape and the natural world as being this, like, yeah, you know, nature aligned with no, what, would, what was described as normal and what's... Mm. He- heterosexist and cisgendered well nature is queer in itself in the fact that all plants are non-binary yeah which is something i've always really enjoyed that that the thought of that and and the knowledge of that that there is nature is queer in its own sort of you know life force yeah exactly and all of the sort of categories that we build up kind of well for me dissolve does the dissolve when you get out in an expansive natural landscape, especially for me at the minute, like the coastal landscape and the and the sea. Um, it's been a really freeing experience to work with, like the energy of the sea for the first time. Mm. We're talking about the sea and water and fluid. There's a great um, film which actually I needed a password for on your website and couldn't access, and I didn't know if that's because it's because uh, of the title, but it's oh, called, right. called Pissing. Yeah, and there is this uh, chasm. Schism. There's a space between two rocks, and it looks like I don't know if it's you or not, but I can only see two legs. But I assume we're then going to be witnessing the artist pissing yeah, between you're two right. rocks. It, <laughs> it is what it says. <laughs> so this this is part of your performances, which you do um, around the sculptures once they've been made, but also you do within the natural landscape. Yeah, that was um, 2018. So that was like that was close to the start of this way of working and it was like it was actually a really spontaneous act it was it wasn't um you know I wasn't setting out to go and make a work it was one of my first sort of and that was actually in St Ives in Cornwall um yeah and really really spontaneous act and it was kind of using literally using the materials of the body and what we have at hand mm. and um, connecting them so that in a really direct way, connecting the materials of the body with the the landscape, the fluid within the body with the with the sea. Mm. I love I love this improvisation that you have. It feels like you 
you go up there and you go like, what, what is that? Who's the artist that um, um, Kembra Farla uses where she says she uses whatever's availabilism, isn't it? Yeah. Is that the term? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, right. And it's like you're there and you're going, well, okay, well, what's available to me in this moment to express, to, to, to be creative, to work out, you know, things, the stories that I want to tell. And that is, you know, amazing. I love that. I um I was also thinking a lot about Helen Chadwick because yeah. if you think of those oh, pissing sculptures, flowers. yeah, the piss flowers, yeah, yeah, which I adore. I think they're so great. And there's even like something of her work which I feel like is holding hands with yours somehow, like mm. in a completely different generation. But we saw even... those at Jupiter Artland, didn't we? That yes, was a big sculpture park. Yeah, that's right. We saw them together. Yeah. Do you, Do you know much about Helen Chadwick? Are you? Yeah, I spent some time. Um, the Henry Moore Institute have got the Helen Chadwick archive. Um, wow. So I've had a look through some, yeah, materials like studio notes, and there's some actually there's some like handmade books. Yeah. Um, I think like I think it was called the Fanny Book, unless I've made that up. But it was <laughs> the um, Fanny Book. Yeah. Yeah. That. Um, we all need yeah. a copy of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's open for people to you know to go and have a look through through those oh, materials. Brilliant. I love the Henry Moore Foundation for that reason because. They're such archivists and they have mm. such brilliant, um, you know, preservation of ideas and, you know, artists and what they've written down and thoughts and how valuable that is. Um, the other thing I really connect to her is that idea that I think with her piss flowers, there was there's some sense of the, the body, obviously, but mm. also um, this this idea of skin or something. Can you and describe what they are, Rob? What are, for people listening, what are the piss flowers? I can't actually remember how she made them to give me a there were, um It was like pissing into snow i think exactly and then they were cast in i don't know what they must have been cast in plaster yeah so yeah it was a negative space itself wasn't it yeah exactly but i always it always used to make me think about layers of skin you know and like and the kind of fragility of of um skin and how i can't quite express what i'm trying to say but i'm uh, you know the way that we as bodies there's so much more within us, if that makes sense. Like, uh, kind of the soul that's within the human body, mm-hmm. and these ideas of just layers of skin that just sort of encapsulate, you know, the the idea of the soul. And there's something about that within within her work, but I also feel that within your work. Yeah, it's almost like it is about a skin or a barrier. I, I describe it, or I've described it recently as this like raincoat layer. Yes, um, and that comes from. It's, there's a, a section within Stone Butch Blues where um, it says the most stone butch of them all wears a raincoat in the shower. And that just made me think of this like layer that is that we have that kind of keeps the outside world out in a way. But I'm interested in how we like how we bond with the natural world or how we sort of like, you know, weld and melt in with the landscape. So mm. um yeah, described it as loads of different ways, as like the terrain, the terrain of the queer body, and um, I think that's where I've looked at sort of um, different structures like islands. A lot describe them as like bodily islands mm. with with submerged by water. Um, yeah, it's all about sort of submersion and I, I, you know, similar to Chadwick. Actually, I think there's this combination of forces as well which is why those works and your works sort of um are appealing because there's a kind of tension all at once between Mm. something that's quite repulsive against something that's really kind of 
pleasing and beautiful. And I remember the word vile was used quite a lot for Helen Chadwick. You know, the idea that like using piss is mm. such a kind of um, base thing. You know, it's so kind of... Um, it's very unfeminine know, as well. Low, I mm. guess. Yeah. And and also this idea of the heat um, of, of human... It's because it's at human body temperature against the ice cold of the snow. Like all of mm. these kind of um, things, you know, elements that are kind of pushing and pulling at the whole, the whole time. And I, I really do feel the same sensation when I look at your work. Yeah, same. And it's it's a fascinating thing. Is that something that you're aware of? Like, or is um, it is something that I want? To, I do want people to have that connection with the work. So that's you know that's really good to hear. And it comes it comes from my sort of personal experience. So I'm putting my sort of body into situations, or I'm um, yeah, I go through a very sort of like real process where I'm I'm. Um, yeah, it's just a very direct process. And so it all comes from the body. It's all informed by a bodily experience and process. And there's sort of, it does have a relationship with like the abject and a little bit of, I, I can see why people might feel a bit like almost repulsed by it because yes. it connects with something like really guttural, um that's even not of it's not even of the thinking mind in a way so it's mm. more about getting yeah. into into our bodies yeah, yeah. and then, um, do, you, do you like that reaction is that something you're you're happy with and do, and do you feel quite because you're using your body so much for the work do you feel quite exposed or are you protective of what you are working with there's um i used to feel more exposed when i did live performances because i used to do i used to do live performance um, and more recently, over recent years, it's been performance for camera. Um, so I feel like there's a different relationship. I used to feel definitely more exposed within a 15, 20-minute improvised performance than I do um, the work that I'm doing for camera. But I, I actually feel you can get a more intimate relationship with the work when it is for camera mm. because you can have a more like one-on-one -on -one experience with it. So it's... Um, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com But what would, that, what would that involve, like a 20-minute improv? What, what exactly would you be doing in these performances? I mean, it used to be really... Um, it used to involve a lot of sound making, but it was basically my relationship with objects so it's quite sculptural I would use a lot of found objects actually quite a lot of the materials and objects that I've later used in my sculptures mm. um, you know steel metal I've used bricks nylon cords all sorts of different materials that I was interested in the sound qualities um, 
So yeah, across loads of different platforms, but it, it often ended up like being at live art venues or even sometimes like music venues and gigs and like, like on the improv scene, which is a completely different yeah, world. Is, yeah. <laughs> Did you nearly go down that road more nearly. kind of like, the, like music making <laughs> or, or a sound artist or? It was kind of like, um, I'm fine art. My, my background's fine art and I feel like it was always going to come back to like drawing and sculpture but it was like a bit of a departure in a way, but I'm really pleased for that departure because it was like, it taught me a lot. Um, it taught me a lot about my own understanding of my own physicality, my own relationship with materials. And I think it's informed the work in a completely different way yeah. than if I hadn't had that. Like, it was very experimental, really massively experimental period. I could imagine the idea of the acoustics of the body and like the noises that your own body can make, you know, alongside the idea of those objects which you're talking about or materials mm. that you were interested in, but like how that could then inform the actual making of a drawing or the making of a sculpture or even if you think of that pissing film, like, you know, the, the sound your body might make in different situations. And that's actually really fascinating as like a kind of psychology behind making sculpture. Yeah, I mean, you've picked on picked up on something there that I did within the performances was actually I did sometimes amplify the body. So I used to use contact mics. So you yeah. like apply them to an object and it picks up more like the internal sound of the object. So I used to put it on my throat. So instead of like amplifying my voice with a microphone, I would amplify it from the throat. So you get a completely different sound, com completely different noise. Um, but yeah, I, I actually did a, a performance I performed with my sculpture, with the Stone Butch um, sculpture for Sculpture in the City. I did my first performance in about two and a half years. Um, I, I used contact mics um, and I mic'd up the sculpture. So I mic'd up the steel and the jasmineite. Mm. Um, and I was getting sounds from the sculpture. And then I kind of, um, I cut it up with... Um, a, basically like a cut up piece of poetry that I did from the Stone Butch Blues novel. Mm. Um, so it was partly like improvised sound making and partly uh, a reading combined together. But mainly these days, my performance is um, off a camera. Right, right, right. To coin a cheesy phrase, do you feel at one with nature? Um, I do a lot more now because that was the thing. Like um, there's, there's, I suppose, like, a political reason for working in the natural landscape. Originally, um, LGBTQ people naturally find more safety within the city, um, yes. within the urban environment, and I didn't feel like the natural landscape was my, like, playground. I didn't feel like it was the place that I did feel free or, or that I was entitled to. I didn't mm. feel that entitlement to the, the British rural landscape. I felt mm. more unsafe going out across the West, you know, West Yorkshire countryside than I did within Manchester city centre or uh, any other city really. Um, so it was like, it was pushing myself to do that. Um, and I do feel that I've kind of built my own connection with the natural landscape now and that I do feel, um, and I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of other artists exploring the natural landscape that it feels like 
yeah, it is being reclaimed and I do feel more connected to it. Contemporary artists, you mean, rather than like land artists like Andy Goldsworthy or someone. Do you mean these contemporary artists now that are... I mean, what was the breakthrough for you? if you think of Ronnie Horn, Russ, like who we spoke to before, like Ronnie Horn's a really interesting older generation artist from yourself who has, has looked at their relationship to... And went to Iceland. Nature and has done... Yeah, exactly, Iceland again. But, you know, recently I've been wearing a T-shirt that says Rural Gay <laughs> and it's by um, a friend of mine called Philip Normal. He's actually the designer who did the La T-shirt for Terence Against oh, yeah. Trust and After helped raise a huge amount of money and he's a local mayor in London and all this kind of stuff. He's just a brilliant, brilliant human being. But he sent me this T-shirt, Rural Gay, and it got me researching ru- this idea of Rural Gay. And in America, there's whole um, communities of, of LGBTQ plus um, people who have moved into rural areas largely by choice not because they were forced to or anything like that because they actually really feel more comfortable there and they don't feel comfortable in cities mm. and there's something like five percent of all people living in in rural america are actually lgbtq and often wow. in couples kind of monogamous uh, gay relationships or queer relationships and i never even knew about all that and you know even for me coming to a place like margate which i know isn't rural necessarily because it's more coastal and it's very urban here but it's a huge lgbtq um society here mm. it's like and, and mainly monogamous couples who are here like i'm one of the only single sort of gays it feels here. like san it's francisco a, back in the day where you go yeah, there because you yeah. want to go there and start you have your life there and retire and do something like better yourself creatively because everybody yeah. in when i first went to san francisco everyone was doing their day job and then the night they'd be doing like macrame you know <laughs> plant pot the holders or, or rug yeah. making or they would be doing like these really crafty skills yeah, yeah. that's definitely happening here as well isn't it yeah but I, I love the idea of sort of claiming rural you know, England or something, you know, for... Yeah, for what was the breakthrough for that? What made you go, oh, my God, this is here and I've been sort of... This has been peripheral. Well, actually, just think, just listening to you guys talking about different places and different queer communities' relationships to places that are more rural, it was, it was the place for me. It was Hebden Bridge. I lived in Hebden Bridge, which is between Manchester and Leeds. Mm. And it's got a really um, high population of LGBTQ people, like... It's got a nickname of lesbian capital of the UK. There's just Wee. tons and tons <laughs> of lesbians living there, just living their lives, just having families, just doing, you know, yeah. doing what you do. But you, it was for the first time in an environment like that, walking down the street and feeling comfortable mm-hmm. and not feeling stared at and, um, yeah, different. And that gave me the, um, I suppose, the confidence to then go from there and work in the way that I did after that. But do you have this pressure now then, so as an artist is getting a lot of attention and you've had works that have been acquired by the Hepworth Wakefield and you've now got your first solo in the West End at Maximilian William Gallery, do you then feel this conflict of going, this is where I make the work, but now I, I do want that city experience, that metropolis? It's, um, I really like the contrast of um, exhibiting the Stone Butch sculpture within the city of London, I think. Um, just the relationship. I mean, on a formal sort of level, just looking at the sort of organic shape within the, like the grid of the city, I found really interesting. And also like to connect our histories as well, like to connect for the sculpture to almost like go back to the city space because it, like within the Stone Butch Blues novel, there's different relationships with safety in, in different places. And the city is has been a really important place within our queer history where we have found our community, where we've found each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, 
it has been nice for me to see the to the to see the sculpture in that environment. Now you're multi-talented because you can actually draw like really technically. You have like a really um, high skill level of, of of drawing and kind of as a drafts person. Like, can you speak a bit about the import importance of drawing within your practice and and how that's influenced the other parts of what you do? Because I find it so impressive. I know it sounds really silly, but like, <laughs> there's something so. I don't know. Your, your drawings are amazing. They're really, like, really unique to really you. Like, amazing. I've, I've seen yeah. them. In, I saw them in the uh, flesh a few weeks back with Maximilian, and I was like, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. It's incomparable. No. I can't, you know, I can't see any references what where this is. I can see tiny elements of other like small bits. Mm. I'm like, that sort of looks like <laughs> Augustan sort of shape, or that looks like. But then, then it's gone. But even the figuration, I mean, there's just a way that yeah. you approach figuration. The fluidity to so it. Yeah. you. I just love yeah. it. Well, there, was, um, there was a period where my drawings were really um, represent, like much more representative and you could see, um, I suppose, more technical drawing mm-hmm. skills of the body. Like um, These are the more black and white graphite ones. Yeah. Right, yeah. And that was, um, yeah, usually black backgrounds and different sections of the body sort of like isolated and then I would use more organic shapes to sort of connect different parts of the body and like drawing I can draw like I can draw what I see it's just something that I've kind of always been able to do and I've always worked on from a really young age I would just draw you know I would just draw what I saw um but really fascinated with drawing the figure um and just trying to get structure through drawing, getting muscle definition and looking at different, you know, looking at, yeah, just, I was just really, really obsessed with trying to get something to to look bodily um, on, a, mm. on, on the page. And all of the drawing has sort of like departed from that place. So it's not so much representational now, it's really gone through a process of abstraction and it's, um, I describe it now more as sort of being more automatic. Mm. So all the things that I'm describing, sort of like the performances that I do, um, sort of going out there and experimenting in the natural landscape, afterwards I'll go into the studio and I feel like that's when it comes through in the drawing, but it's through like I try and zone out really and just see what see what comes out through that process automatically. Wow. Um like a subconscious thing. Yeah, but I don't think I would be able to do that if I hadn't come from sort of representing the figure more directly. Mm. It's like a, it's a departure from that. You know, I just I, I went recently to see the Paul Arego show at, um, Tate. at Tate Britain, and there's something about Paul Arego even within your your drawings. It's really strange because obviously they don't look like Paul Aregos at all, but mm. there's just like a energy field of some kind. I love that one recently that. Um, it almost looks like an onion or something that you've drawn, like within it, and it's it, even it that blue? got me thinking. Now I think it's more like maroon kind of one, um, but I feel like that might be a theme as but the, well. The draw, like but the drawings for me, there, there's a fluidity going. Like you just mentioned, the blue. There's like there's like liquid fluidity going through it, but then there's these barriers, which mm. I guess is like again relates to the sculpture and the fact that it is fluidity, but there is a barrier. There's yeah. this natural barrier, and that's the drawings have these sort of moments in there that stop stop it from becoming a full kind of, you know, connection. Yeah. For me, like the blues are kind of, um, kind of like washing through these barriers because I've been working with um, gouache 
which you use with water. So it's like really watery um, paint and it dries quite quickly. So you've got to kind of move it around really quickly and it'll, it'll sometimes kind of go where it wants as well. So it's sometimes a bit of chance involved with in the process. Um, yeah, there's uh, the lines really important and how that sort of like gets submerged or I've really enjoyed sort of just really celebrating these blues and um, like aquamarine, aquamarine colours and um, just having them sort of like wash through all of the, the structures and the bodies within the work. Yeah, it's just what it relate. They I mean, relate to each other. They complement. Are you going to be showing showing those in London as part of this? There's this fourteen. Show? There's fourteen. You've got. Yeah, showing, yeah, yeah. They're all yeah. here. <laughs> all from um, all from this summer, basically. All works that I've made this summer. Brilliant. So this show. So you're at Maximilian William Gallery in the West End of London, and your show the opens very soon. So when this episode comes out, the show will be open. It's called yeah. Subterrain or Subterrainy. Subterrain, yeah. Subterrain. And how, how did you come up with that title? And then let's talk about this show, because as you said, there's 14 gouache on paper and board, but there's also freestanding sculptures in there as well. Yeah, so the title um, obviously like has a relationship to uh, geology and sort of the idea of like what's below the surface in a way. But I thought it had like a double sort of meaning or a connection with like the underground in terms of our queer history as well so like coming out almost from underground like hidden spaces into like into the light in a way um so yeah um the works are all made this, they've all been made this summer so I've got some works on paper and I've got some um, gouache works on board as well um, and I've also got a freestanding sculpture, which is steel and jasmineite and found objects. So I've used some of the clothing that I've used in different performances um, and incorporate that into the sculpture. Within um, the jasmineite, or is it part um, of the structure? More attached to the steel structure. Right, cool. So yeah, playing in a way that you can't that you can't really play with the public sculpture. So it's more like some more like fragile materials. On, on this sculpture and is is that something that interests you then because there, there was a performance you did um called anti-monument that that sort of got me thinking a lot about this this dialogue that i know i spoke about it before once i think with matthew derbyshire maybe years and years ago um and jesse flood paddock and a few artists um of that generation where they were really concerned with the idea of public sculpture and um and its kind of place mm. in contemporary society. Can you speak a bit about this idea of monuments or, or, or what that means to you? Yeah, that's um, it's really interesting you should mention that because I think my first... I've had a tricky relationship with sculpture in a way. I've been like... Like you say, I, I titled a work Anti-Monument and I was mm. smashing up a load of bricks and yes. I was more about like smashing stuff up than kind of building something that's going to last for... But that was because of, I think, what sculptures represented. I didn't look to sculpture and think that that represents me or that represents like what I'm doing. So it's a, it's sculpture, especially public sculpture has represented tradition, like historically, um, you know, a binary understanding of gender and a single um, representation of sexuality. And I think I looked to more ephemeral art forms as a way of sort of like breaking that down and, um, sort of disrupting that but I'm at a place now where I think actually we need to occupy space and we need there needs mm. to be something else and so 
I'm really enjoying working in a more public way, working in the open air, exhibiting work outside that's more accessible to more people that we're talking about these subjects in a broader mm. way. Um, yeah. I think it's the same as well for people of colour and artists of colour. And, um, you know, like here in Margate, there's a, a collective called People Them Collective. And um, they recently did a kind of mural with kids um, depicting their uh, favourite British black icon, for example. And when you walk into the town now, you see this whole kind of um, parade of different iconic black figures. So you think of like um, Skin from Skunk and Nancy or whoever it may be. That's the one that stays in my head because I love her. Um, but um, I was talking to people at M Collective and they were saying to me that for, for, for if, if, you know, if, if you're a young black person and you're coming down to Margate, to see that there means you feel welcome and you know you are welcome in Margate. And she was saying it's an equivalent thing to having the gay flag, which is like the rainbow flag in Margate, because oh. it's everywhere in Margate now. Yeah. And she said, you know, for Anywhere. me coming there as a, as a... Exactly. But she was using Margate as a kind of example. And th this idea that... that you know, that you're welcome and that you're present or something. So I think it's really important for, you know, all different kinds of people to be able to have um, the space in public, you know, mm. zones where you can show artworks from different backgrounds and different voices. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I suppose I say that it's great for a broad, like, public to see this work, but it's also great for, like, when I was setting up for the performance um, with the Stone Butch sculpture, um, uh, a woman came over and she... She didn't know about the work beforehand, but she saw the title of the work and she saw the work and she saw what it represented and she got so excited that there was something about, you know, lesbian history and, and butch lesbian identity in a public space that, that she was just, she wanted to get a photograph taken with it and she was just really excited by the work and that's, yeah, that's really important to me. Do you know the work of Catherine Opie? Because we talked about Ronnie Horn, who uh, I think... Their pronouns are they, they and them, and but yeah. Catherine Opie, do you know her work? Because she has absolutely looked at butch, dyke, yeah. lesbian history yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there are some great artists who've looked at butch um, culture, like Catherine Opie, and there's, but I've, I, I have always felt that it's been sort of misunderstood as well, and not, um, not on massive sort of like platforms so right, yeah. for it was a it was a, it was quite a conscious decision to kind of you know even just use terms like stone butch and to kind of place it within lesbian and butch history and um you know working at places like yorkshire sculpture park where loads of different types of people go and got to talk about the work and yeah it just opens up the conversation yeah so it's not kind of ghettoized almost, yeah exactly. or like you know kept in its in a smaller arena, mm. you know, it's actually introducing it to a completely different audience and therefore educating people. And also, I think on the really formal level, if you go back to like your work, Hyper Arousal, which I really liked, um, there's something really within that work from 2017 that I think has a lot of the elements of what you've gone on to do. It was almost like something that embodies lots of these different um, dynamics, I guess. Mm. Love that work. I think you're right about signals though, Rob. You just mentioned the rainbow flag. Like as a personal experience, if I go somewhere and I see a rainbow flag, I do sort of ease a little, mm. relax a little mm. and think, oh, okay, well, that's cool. I'm all right here. It's, it's, it's strange, but these signals are so important for, yeah. you know, minorities, for people that are in the margins, I guess, of mainstream. Yeah, it just signals that somebody, you know, 
that there's somebody there from your community that's a safer space to be and you do feel more relaxed in yourself. Totally, totally. So we ask every guest that comes and talk art uh, two very important questions. The first one is, if you could do an art heist, and we don't know if you collect art, uh, but if you could steal any work of art, anything, could be a building, could be a painting, could be a pair of shoes, anything, from anywhere <laughs> in the world, what would it be and why? Um, this Not just because it's worth probably a hell of a lot of money, but it would have to be Francis Bacon. Oh, really? I absolutely love Francis Bacon and... I've been thinking about because Francis Bacon spent six months at Porthmere Studios in, in St Ives, and no I just way. yeah yeah, um, and I would love a work from like from that time. And there's one called Reclining Figure, which is um, yeah, it's a figure, but it's within like a seascape, so it's quite a small painting. I think it was he was there in 1960, um, so I think this work is is from 1960 or 1961, but. Um, yeah, I hadn't really noticed the sea or like the horizon in in his paintings until I'd realised that he'd spent that time in St Ives, and then I can see after that there's like loads of horizontal lines and loads of stripes of like the horizon and the sea come through. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, I'd never even noticed that no, before either. either. But yeah, I'm I, just looking at it now. That's an amazing painting. Oh Do you God. know, when you're at them studios then, can you see, obviously they would say Francis Bacon goes there, but is there like a list when you're there of like this, these artists all did, <laughs> so cool. you know, were here? There's no a list. That'd be probably quite useful, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you get to know about who's been there from like the other artists, the studio holders and... Um, who else was? Who else has been there? Anyone? Well, the um, there's a, the artist who's in the studio that Francis Bacon was in is called Naomi Frears and she was telling me more about that history so cool that is really so she's actually working in the studio that francis she's, bacon was working she's in. in the studio that francis bacon was who in. was in your studio anyone that you knew their work or were aware of them um there's been because it's six months so every six months there's yeah. a new artist in there so there's been absolutely loads of yeah, artists been hundreds, since the yeah. 1960s richard long was in there after me after you <laughs> yeah after me so <laughs> <laughs> It, wow. it's, an ama- it's an amazing place. It's like, um, yeah, there's been absolutely amazing artists there. Um, Labena Himmed did a residency there. Uh, for, oh, cool. um, and this is in St Ives in Cornwall? Yeah. It and faces all- the beach. You, you can't, well, some of the studios, Studio 9 that I was in, you're facing the sea. Wow. Um, so, yeah. How many, fa- are, how many studios are there? Um, roughly about 20, I think. Wow. I actually met a few of the artists because I went to the reopening of the Tates and Ives when they did the mm. extension um, that Jamie Foubert, the architect, um, did. Uh, with Rebecca them. Warren, was it? With Rebecca Warren. Yeah. It was her... Um, she she was the inaugural kind of show there. And um, Labena's painting was on the wall that the Tate had just acquired, I think. Yeah. And it was actually in the Tates and Ives on display and it was such a great painting. Oh, my God. I love Labena. I didn't know she'd done that, though. But it's a really brilliant community there of artists, actually. Um, yes. Yeah. And like, so it's great to have the, the short-hauled studios. So it just keeps, like, yeah, get new energy and get new artists in there. It's really, really great. Cool. The other question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? At the minute, it's got to be blue. But I don't know what type of blue, because there's so many. <laughs> but probably this sort of... Um, I'm just obsessed with this like aqua, aquamarine colour that mm. I didn't know existed in this country until like I spent time in Cornwall. You just got the turquoise of like the 
the sea. So, yeah, that's my favourite colour at the moment. Oh, you mean existed in the natural world rather yeah, than actually yeah, a colour yeah. you could buy? I didn't right, realise right. that in this country you could kind of see white sand beaches and crystal clear turquoise water until I'd spent time in, um, in Cornwall. Yeah, I'm just obsessed with that colour. Everyone's going to get down there. How does colour actually like affect you? Does it affect you on like a visceral kind of bodily level? Yeah, more like more so since living in Cornwall because I mean I didn't use like was said um, those drawings that were more representational were all like black and white on black backgrounds, quite dark really. Mm. Um, But then I lived in the bottom of a valley, so it's like I didn't have much light going on in general, and now I'm living like yeah. It's com- it, it's a cle- like it's so um, commented on so much, but the light in Cornwall and St Ives is just completely different. So you could just see things more clearly in them. Yeah, everything's everything's got a bit lighter. <laughs> so it heightens what you make. It transforms. It changes what you make. The work. Yeah. 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 It affects everything. Light light affects everything, doesn't it? Light and colour. What is the um, best advice you've ever received as an artist thus far? Hmm. That's quite a difficult question. I'm not sure, you know. But if not to make it easier, what is the best advice that you would give had, a younger artist? Actually, we had a really good um, session about sort of inspiration from um, Heather, Heather Philipson. Yeah, oh, yeah. He was yeah. just saying, like, go with what excites you, really. Go, like, draw your inspiration from what excites you and kind of, yeah, run with that. We did a whole exercise about, like, stop thinking about your practice so much and kind of let's just talk about what we get excited about and kind of take mm-hmm. things from there. It's a different way of talking about our work. That was a, that was a really good exercise. To crack, crack voids in rocks is what got you excited. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right. Uh, would you give any advice to younger artists? What Would you say anything that could be helpful for them listening? Yeah, I always, I mean, you've, basically, you've just got to keep going. There's so many sort of um, barriers and, and challenges, but you've just got to keep making your work at every opportunity you get. Um and make your own space, like build your own communities, be part of your own sort of scene. And you're not gonna, if you, you know, you're not gonna get a gallery show straight away. But make make your own gallery, make your own space. Just get just get your work out in the real world, one way or another. Love that. Love that. Love that. Well, thank you so much, Roseanne. This has been amazing. A total pleasure to uh, talk to you. Everyone should get down to Maximilian William Gallery. Uh, it's on Mortimer Street, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Mortimer Street in the West End of London for Subterrain. What are the dates of the show? So it opens on Thursday on the 7th of October and it runs until the 27th of November. Okay. Amazing. And you can visit at Maximilian underscore William on Instagram. And um, are you on Instagram, Roseanne? Yeah, Roseanne underscore Robertson. And we will link to you. I like the fact that you've also got an underscore, just like... Yeah, I didn't realise until you just read it out then. (laughs) Um, Love that. Right. Well, for all images we've discussed today, please go to at TalkArt on Instagram and Twitter. And um, yes, thank you, Roseanne. It's been brilliant. Oh, and also you've got your own website as well, which if people want to go to, is a whole archive. um, Oh, yeah, but you need a password to watch the pissing video. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm going to sort that out. 
Okay, but you can go to roseannerobertson.art and then there's a whole kind of archive there of lots of different sides to your work, which we love. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. Stick around, Roseanne. Uh, Everyone, thank you so much and we will see you next time. Very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com